As a business owner of an aquaculture company, how can you take the first step to be profitable and sustainable at the same time? That's what we're going to be talking about in these episodes. Hello, and welcome to the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This is the podcast for the sustainable business movement in the aqua farming and ocean ranching industries. This podcast aims to amplify the voices of entrepreneurs addressing the United Nations Global Goals, aka Sustainable Development Goals, number 14, to conserve and sustainably use the oceans and the seas. Listen in to fellow business aquaculturists in their journey in this new model of food production of making their business sustainable and help the ocean's ecology while also making a profit all at the same time. Get inspired to learn how even small to medium businesses can make an impact to save the seas, leave a legacy, and have a better quality of life. One of our goals is you take away a nugget of wisdom that will help your business move from the industrial revolution to business 5.0. Our vision is that of collaboration in the aquaculture industry. I'm Lourdes Gant, your host. As a business owner of an aquaculture company, what do you do to implement recirculating systems in the shrimp farming industry? That's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Welcome to Episode 5, Season 6 of the Business of Aquaculture podcast. This episode, we have Global Recirculating Aquaculture System Consultant for the Shrimp Industry, Patrick Wood. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hi there. Hi, Lourdes. Thank you for your time today. He is instrumental in spawning more than 40 billion commercial Vaname shrimp aquaculture in the industry with more than 2.5 million jobs since 1983. Talking about shrimp farm, shrimp hatchery, and shrimp processing plant, designing, managing, owning, promoting, and commentating. He has hands-on precision shrimp ras engineering in the European Union. Welcome again, Patrick. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you, how did you end up being in the aquaculture industry? Well, it's a long story, but I'll make it short for you. 40 years ago, I was doing my degree in Bangor, North Wales, and there was an advert on the board there in the old days before the times of faxes or anything else even. And there was an advert on the board. It was in the Marine Science Laboratories. And I was a soil scientist oceanographer. So I applied for the job. And interestingly, precisely what I I had done at university was to do with the interface between the oceans and the land. And that includes like deltas, delta formations, and that area is precisely where the shrimp farming areas are. This job, they were looking for about three people to start working in the shrimp industry in Ecuador. It was an American company. And I did a sort of remote telephone interview back in 1982 or whatever. And then they sent a telex, you're hired, and that's when I started. My first job was working in shrimp farms, a shrimp farm, sorry, one of probably the most advanced shrimp farm at the time in Ecuador, which was uh, Grandma. And it was a 250 hectare shrimp farm. We had nursery ponds and we were using larvae, wild larvae. There were no hatcheries. We were using wild larvae. Well, there was one hatchery and that was our sister company. And they had Vaname and steely rostrous larvae that they were producing, and it was run by the French 
IFRAMER France Aquaculture Group, uh, together with the Americans that hired me. And when I first went there, I was working the shrimp farm, and I would be testing all sorts of larvae coming out of there, you know, what's the best larvae, you know, and testing and testing. And, and it would always be a terrible experience. The hatchery larvae never really worked in the old days. So I'd always say, no, 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 compared to wild larvae, let's stick to the wild larvae, let's stick to the wild larvae, because we were there to make money as well. We did a lot of feed trials as well. In the ponds, we'd put in a tank round uh, sort of nets, cages in the ponds, and do loads of experiments because we had a sister feed mill company, which was basically an old chicken feed mill company that we converted to shrimp. Those days, back then, we were pioneers. It was the only commercial hatchery, Vaname hatchery in the world, really. It was owned by the Americans, like I said, and I was, you know, it was even rump. The, the technology was French in the hatchery. The farming technology was just happening and more to do with what was going on in the industry as such. There was no sort of we were definitely breaking ground and pioneering on all these things. So interesting time, 40 years ago. But from there, I decided I wanted to spend at least four or five years in each sector of the industry because there's the farming, but there's also the hatcheries. And they were developing at that time. So I actually set up my own, built my own hatchery designed and built my own hatchery and started producing larvae and selling them to local people. So that's where I started working the hatchery side of the business. I had my own operation. But the problem is wild larvae was my competition. And when the wild larvae was very abundant, the prices went down. And I couldn't sell my shrimp larvae from the hatchery to anybody because nobody wanted to, when they could buy wild larvae, why bother? But I'd installed it when there was a, when there was a, a deficit. And then when I sort of like started really operations, there was a, a glut. So basically, I said, no, I either have to buy my own shrimp farm or I get out of the business. So I got out of the business. But then I went to Mexico, where I built the first shrimp hatchery in Mexico. There was no shrimp industry as such in Mexico at the time. I think there was one farm, and that was it. I built the first hatchery there with uh, maturation. I supplied the U.S. Shrimp Consortium with their post larvae from Mexico. Dr. Lightning in Arizona received those shrimp there. He ordered all the stocks to be burnt in the U.S., no more importations unless it went through him, which was the Aquatic Pathogen Lab, the APL in Arizona. And then once he tests all these, he tested my shrimp, sent them to Hawaii, and they became what is now the Kona strain or something. So I was involved. I did that shrimp hatchery. Then I decided that I'd sort of needed to go into the other side of the business. I'd done, you know, I owned my own little hatchery, built a big hatchery. I'd run a farm. Then I decided to get involved in processing side of the business. That's when I started working in processing, trading, buying. I went back to Ecuador and I started working in processing shrimp, which was interesting because there was a company at the time there, which I joined called Impacro Nacional. And they were part of Marine Harvest International, Marine Harvest Maui now, big salmon guys, but they were in the shrimp industry as well back then. And I took over the processing facility so i learned everything about processing shrimp you know receiving all the tricks of the trade haccp we developed 
in that facility because there was no such thing as HACCP. So I was involved with the FDA because we were very high profile in the Amex, American stock market. It was a publicly traded company, the first pure agriculture play in the world, actually. We were on the Amex, so we had a lot of uh, visibility or rather we had a lot of people looking at us. So we worked with the US FDA to develop the seafood quality assurance program, which was NASA, NASA led and run, which now is called HACCB. So we set that up in 1996. It became US law in 1997. So we were doing it before laying down the groundwork, testing, trialing. And after Impacto Nacional, Marine, Marine Harvest in, in Ecuador, it was sold to a local company. They took it off the stock market and bought by a company called Booker in South Africa. And then afterwards, it was bought by Nutraco. And then Nutraco sold it on as well. And Marine Harvest became Marine Harvest as they consolidated. But I did all that. And then I, I, I was working in, in this side, that, that at the processing side of the business. And that meant also downstream. So I was able to learn a lot about For example, we were suppliers to Darden restaurants. We were suppliers to the White House, uh, Clinton, and then also in England to the Queen as well. And so I learned a lot about downstream stuff as well, because it's not just, oh, process shrimp and then freeze it. It's also the presentation, the value added, the what, you know, all this sort of stuff. And you've got to sell it somewhere. So we were supplying Red Lobster, which was interesting because they had the cooking facility. So what we were doing back in the day was selling shrimp to people like Red Lobster, who in the back of their restaurants, they had people peeling the shrimp or using machinery, some machines and everything. But it turned out extremely expensive to hire people in the US to do that. But every restaurant had one. And what we did was we bought that whole technology back down, downstream, closer to the source. And we developed the value-added side of the business, like peeling, basically the butterfly peeling and all that sort of stuff in Ecuador, close to the source, which meant that the people like the all these restaurants and casinos everywhere, they didn't need labor anymore there. And so it was an enormous saving time-wise. Labor is one of the big, and shrimp can get a bit sort of like finicky to peel and everything. So that was another thing that, that I was involved in, was bringing back all that technology closer to the shrimp farms. And now, obviously, what we were doing was in those days, we would sell, you know, we'd send up containers of shrimp, and they were they were basically cooked in the U.S. back then. Now they're cooked close to the source, but they were cooked in the U.S. and sent around in a central cooking facility and then shipped to all the, the outlets, yeah? So I learned about that, but I decided to then get involved in what is – I say, well, okay, I've done the shrimp farm. I've done five years of shrimp farming, five years of shrimp hatcheries, five years of processing facilities – and then I got contacted by the ex-president of Marine Harvest. He said, look, we, we got a project in Africa. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Let's go and do that. So I went to Africa to see how we can develop globally from the industry. And I built a big shrimp farm, big processing facility, and a hatchery. But this time, it wasn't Vaname. It was Monodon. In Monodon, we even had a feed mill in South Africa. So I, I sort of went from the different components to doing one project that was a, an overall component.
So that was an interesting one as well. I'd already, before that, I'd worked a couple of years as a consultant in West Africa, doing the same sort of thing with a French organization, which was consolidated. So they did everything, they had tree farm and processing export facility. But then when I was in Africa, I found my German wife and I moved to Europe. And when I moved to Europe, what I decided then was to jump the fence So to go to the other side of the industry, which is the importation side, I knew all the tricks of the trade for the exports, the, you know, all to do with the technical specifications. So I started working for Lion Seafoods in the UK, supplying Sainsbury's supermarkets. And with my experience of processing facilities and having developed what is now called HACCP, in the seafood industry with FDA, I was easily able to go back upstream and visit different facilities in different countries and basically it was Southeast Asia. So I'd go to places like Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, and I'd be looking at our suppliers. And it was the same thing for Royal Greenland because England was a bit cold for me. I'd, you know, I'd lived in Africa. So I I jumped, I, I left Lion Seafood and I went to work for Royal, Royal Greenland in Spain, although I was basically traveling around the world buying and, and they were importing into Denmark the shrimp for reprocessing. So I could live in Spain, which is one of the things I couldn't do in Lion Seafood. I had to live in England. It's cold and horribly cold. I'm not too keen on that. <laughs> I, just so that, to tell, so I just wanted to tell our audience that you guys are getting like half a century. We're picking Patrick's brain here in terms of his expertise. So I want to stop you there for a second because there's yeah, a sure. lot of interesting information that you share with us. I like when you started, when you were talking about you wanted to spend five years in each sector. I think that's a very, very good strategy when someone wants to be an expert at anything, focusing on one thing for a certain period of time, and then you get a master at it. But you also mentioned a lot of different categories of the aquaculture industry. You mentioned about farming, hatchery, processing, importation, and then you even have your categories as upstream and downstream. Maybe talk a little bit more in terms of what you're seeing as a future trend in the rice shrimp farming sector about this upstream and downstream. Okay. As intensification happens, people are going to see that there is a potential to intensify via RAS, of course. So is the cell about controlling and controlling your culture? It's not only about that. In the RAS, what you can do is you can have a local product. That's very important. No, And people like to have, oh, we'll support a local product. And not only are you more transparent on things like antibiotics, feed, and lots of other things, you know, antibiotic feed, chemicals, additives, stuff like that. You have to be because the regulation in Europe just doesn't allow you to have that sort of stuff. Meanwhile, while the open pond guys in Ecuador and in Southeast Asia are still in India are still doing their thing and importing, um, the RAS is bit by bit getting the basics together, the foundation and the structure together to be able to present a product that is, you know, local, creates employment, everything, protein conversion at a local level. And it's happening and it's working. But right now, still everywhere in RAS, it's in shrimp anyway, it's still very niche. And, you know, what is the production of Europe right now? I don't know, 600 metric tons 
per year or something, you know, it's teeny weeny, you know. And when you think that I used to process, you know, 80 tons every day, you know, so in one week, I'd process what Europe does in one year, in one company in Ecuador, for example. While that is happening, the economics are being sorted out, you know, is it worthwhile? And it's only worthwhile if you can sell your product at a price that justifies paying for all this extra stuff in Europe. Because while in South America or, or in Southeast Asia, your feed is fairly low, in Europe, your feed is a high cost. It's a major cost in, oh, don't get me wrong, it's a major cost in agriculture across the board. But if you can sell your product in a higher price, you can obviously afford to pay a higher price for your feed as well. And yes, that's the, the major thing right now is being able to sell the product at a good price that justifies all and still making them money, isn't it? So, and this is all happening right now and it's working pretty good. There's lots of different technologies within RAS. Uh, let's put it this way actually, RAS is recirculating aquaculture systems. And that's great. Zero discharge would be great, but there's certification organizations that say, 5% water exchange is still a RAS, for example, ASC or something, or 2%, you can still call it a RAS. I'm not of that opinion. I'm of the opinion that, look, if we're going to do a RAS, let's make it zero discharge. None of this, oh, yeah, you can get by, because it fudges the numbers. And then I could probably say, well, in Ecuador, I could have an open pond that I don't do it in. That could be 5% water exchange. I can call that a RAS as well, you know. But no, it's not about what you call it, it's more about how you do the branding a bit. And the RAS is a local thing. So you're not going to get many people doing a RAS system in Ecuador, because then they're just competing with the commodity grown stuff over there. And then the other thing is automation, of course, you're getting automation, you know, less people using, you know, less people required, more technology. And that's all coming about with the smartphones and edge computing and IoT and all this stuff, you know, sensors and all this stuff that's coming out right now, which when I first started in the RAS business, I was, I'd finished an MBA in London and it was after I'd worked for Marine Harvest, but before I went to Africa and I went to work a couple of years in Germany. And the company in Germany was an equipment manufacturer of drum filters, band filters, and all that sort of stuff, supplying the eel industry in Denmark. And in fact, the technology that they were using in the eel industry was from these, these, these German companies. And it was quite interesting. I got involved in all that. I, I started getting interest for it. And then we set up a project in Japan, the first project. Nobody in Europe was interested. They said, uh, you know, that all the people that we went to for money – they oh let's go and talk to the university professor. The university professors know nothing because they're not in the industry. They're just watching from afar, or they're doing little research projects in fish bowls, you know, basically. But then they turn around and say, no, no, no. Why would we bother growing tropical shrimp in Europe when we can buy them cheaper from outside? And therefore, what by buying outside cheaper we're supplying cheaper shrimp for the europeans and the european union said oh yeah great cheap shrimp because shrimp is considered a luxury good so if you can buy shrimp cheaply indirectly you feel more wealthy 
oh, I can now afford shrimp because I must be wealthy. Therefore, it sort of like offsets the people striking for more money or, you know, complaining about not getting their wages. You know, and the European said, oh, no, we'll... And then the problem, though, is that, yes, they can do it offshore, import all this for the good of the European social people, but then what they were missing out on the Europeans was the technology, you know, all that stuff about creating employment and all this sort of stuff. But only recently afterwards, so the first job we actually got was in Japan. Went to Japan, set the project up, got two more in China. And I was looking at all this back in 2001, 20 years ago. And I looked at it and I developed SOPs and I thought, nah, not ready yet. Technology is not there yet. And I pulled back, which is when I went into working in the marketing distribution, supermarkets, UK, that stuff, because I thought I, it wasn't quite ready yet. And only in the last two years, in the last two years, I decided to jump back into RAS, because I realized that maybe now shrimp RAS, I don't know about all the other stuff, just shrimp. Shrimp are not fish, by the way, let's be very clear. Shrimp do not swallow their feed, but they do now if they're small enough. But anyway, so I decided two years ago to jump back into RAS, and that's what I've been doing. Not all of what I've been doing, but part of what I've been doing is is the RAS in Europe. I wanted to pause for a little bit because you mentioned something that I just really learned in the last two years as well. When you were talking about the shrimp being cheap and being imported in another country, I learned about this term called arbitrage, and it's basically this, what they did, right? So to be able to sell one product in a different location because you're leveraging that they don't have something like that. So have you been seeing a lot more of this happening? Arbitrage to me is something different there, but I would consider it, of course, I mean, markets will go, I mean, what's really interesting was that when I first did the Mexico project, I had a guy from France come over. He said, oh, I'm interested in buying a Mexican shrimp farm shrimp from Mexico. And we said, fine, here's the price. He goes, nah, I can buy cheaper from Thailand. And if you mean by arbitrage that you're able to sort of like do that, then yeah. that And, and when I became a buyer in the UK, of course, I was able to, you know, oh, I, I can get black tiger from Sri Lanka. But hang on a minute, I can get it cheaper from Bangladesh. And I'd go back to the Sri Lankans and say, well, sorry, lower your price. So I was able, because it's fractured and because it's geographically across the whole globe, the markets can really decide where they want to get the product from. So we would make sure we had preferred suppliers. But yes, you can play one off against the other or lower your prices, or not only lowering prices, maybe getting better quality. But in the end, it is about buying the, you know, the right product at the right price, of course. Yeah. Well, so my last question to you is, why is it important in your consulting? What kind of leaders have you encountered in terms of innovating and being updated with technology? I know it's just only mostly recent, but in the last half a century, you've been in, in this industry. What are the, I guess, different personalities that you can say, oh, this CEO is ready for technology or some is holding back, some are more traditional. What's your take on that? Well, in the shrimp industry, it's very, very fragmented. So look, to be honest with you, we never waited for a company to come in and give us a disruptive technology. The first disruptive technology we really had was the use of nurseries 
so the in the wild because the wild was see the wild supply in Ecuador was seasonal. We used to buy as much as we could, put them in nurseries, and hold them at very high density. Therefore, we were able to grow shrimp all year round because we would move from the nursery to the grow uh, to the grow. So we basically took the seasonality out of the industry by doing that, and it was great because we had in those days you'd have hands off people. Now. The CEO was not really us. I mean, the first CEO I knew was a president of the company, but he was a banker, so he didn't know anything about the biology or whatever. But you know, and we were given the free reign to test, try, and develop, including in the hatcheries. We were let's try this, let's try that, you know. And, and it wasn't done, and it wasn't anything to do with universities coming to us. It was more about us uh, people. Oh, let's do that. Let's invest in this, you know, or let's try this new machine, or let's make one. You know, let's make a machine that does this because there isn't one in the industry. And even that is still happening in places like Ecuador. There's a lot of the major exporters, all less the CEOs. I mean, they they've made millions over the years, and they're all great CEOs because they're all looking after their own businesses, you know, but. Because it's so fragmented, there's no. It's not like in the salmon where you've got you know one or two or some companies that are big and just driving forward. Here, it's, you've got lots of people doing different things, but there's no disruptive. There's no you know somebody who's going to come in and say, "Oh, I've got disruptive technology. Try this." Because actually, our industry is disruptive to the fishing industry already. You know, we're already, aquaculture is already disruptive, you know. It's like, yes, you'll get people coming in and say, you know, oh, let, let's use this uh, automatic feeder. Great, fantastic, and it's not going to disrupt the industry. It's not a game changer because prior to that, we had people, and they were feeders. They would feed, and it's just automating that. So, yes, it saves. It's, they're all incremental things that help they're not all oh, going to game change, you know. And the same thing, I guess, with what are, what other stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I like what you said, though. I think it's very important to note for our listeners. When someone think of aquaculture, they think they're all kind of the same. But you made a very important point, saying that you know the shrimp aquaculture industry is fragmented as compared or versus salmon aquaculture which is a bigger industry compared to shrimp. So It's not, though. That, that's yeah, it. It's not a yeah, bigger industry. Exactly. It is, but it's not. It's actually smaller if you look yes. at the dollars and the volume. It's smaller. You know, shrimp is the most liked seafood in, in the U.S., and more shrimp is produced from aquaculture and sold and volume-wise than salmon. So it's not bigger. It's just that the salmon industry is a Western aquaculture thing, and they get the, they get all the media, don't they? they get exactly, the, the branding. So they got all that. Whereas there's all these people all over the place, from Indonesia to China to, to Taiwan, used to be a strong uh, player in the industry as well. And they're all fragmented, smaller guys. But, hey, that's why you have a million people with jobs in this. It's not like, you know, a, a few hundred thousand. You've got millions of people involved in the industry at all levels and feeding into the industry, you know, supporting families and everything. So it's good that it's fragmented. And so, yeah, that's one of the things that we're seeing. It's good. And to keep it fragmented might be for the good of the industry, to be honest with you. Sounds good. Well, thank you again for your wealth of knowledge, Patrick. My biggest takeaway from this episode, from our conversation, was when you were talking about not settling for a smaller percentage in terms of discharge. 
I love what you mentioned about it has to be a zero discharge recirculating aquaculture system. How can our audience get in touch with you? Oh, via my blog, if they want, if they go to the Prawn Masters blog, they'll see all the contact details there on LinkedIn or however, you know, I mean, if they're interested in further information, sure. I'm pretty busy, though, in consulting work. <laughs> Thank you again for your time. Our next guest is Martin Jaffa, a consultant at Calander McDowell in the United Kingdom to talk to us about strategic planning and marketing in the aquaculture industry. Thanks again, Patrick. Do leave a review of the podcast and share with us your biggest takeaway from this episode. See you next week. Bye, Patrick. Thanks, Lourdes. Bye. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are inspired from this episode. Do take a moment and share this with your friends and colleagues and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway from this conversation has been. What are you going to do differently? Please share your thoughts across social media and tag us. For links and show notes for this episode, visit our website www.sustainableaquaculture.ca slash podcast. Thank you again. I hope you will join me on the next episode and together we can help create a better business in aquaculture.